You know, we've been doing a sermon series this fall called Jesus is the Question. And Martin Copenhaver wrote a book called Jesus is the Question. Not Jesus is the answer, but Jesus is the Question. And we're looking at 307 questions that Jesus asked, 184 that he was asked, and between three and eight that he answered. And this morning, I think we're going to be looking at Jesus's most important question. Of all the 307 questions he asked, my belief is this is the most important question. And it's not only one that he asked his disciples, but it's a question that he really asks every one of us. So with that in mind, let's look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30. And this scripture is short. The most life's most important question is embedded in the scripture, but don't be fooled by how short the scripture is. This scripture is a life changer. It's coming up on the screen now. And if you would look at it and read it and take it seriously, it could change our lives. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, I pray that you would pour through me the gift of preaching, that these words might truly help every one of us take a step of faith on our journey. If there's anyone here who's uncomfortable with you or unsure, may somehow you bring us comfort. If we feel like we need to make a decision, would you help us to make it? If we're not sure exactly what we believe, may today's message help us to clarify that just a little bit. To that end, speak through me today, O God, and we know you will, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ, and may all God's people say, amen. Well, the author T.S. Eliot, you've all heard of him, he said that every now and then life drops an unavoidable question at your door. The question that Jesus asked his disciples, and he actually asked us today, is not only an unavoidable question, but it's one that really demands a response. Now, before we look at the question and analyze this question, who do you say that I am? I'd like you to remind you a few things about this question, because that's not always clear when you first think about it. First of all, I'd like you to notice that Jesus didn't ask this question for three years. He didn't ask the disciples this question when he first called them by the Sea of Galilee to follow me, because they weren't ready for it then. Instead, he spent three years with them, talking to them, teaching them, praying with them, getting them ready for this moment when he's going to ask the question, who do you say that I am? And think about all the experience of those three years. They saw people who actually came who were blind and maimed and lame, and Jesus healed them. They saw that. They experienced it. They saw a man come with leprosy on his hands and arms, and he reached out his hand toward Jesus, and Jesus touched the leper, and the man was cleansed. They saw that. They were in the boat with Jesus, fearing they were going to die, and the boat was going to be overturned, and they were going to drown in the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, Jesus awoke, and he calmed the storm, 
And they looked at him and they said, who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? They wondered, who is he? They were asking that question then. And they saw all these things that he did. They saw him go to Jerusalem twice for the Passover and teaching in the synagogues. And the Pharisees and scribes are troubled. They wondered, who is this guy that he teaches with such authority? They saw all these things that Jesus was doing and they were watching him. And now they're ready after three years for him to ask them, who do you say that I am? Another thing I want you to notice about this scripture is where he asked this question. He doesn't ask it by the Sea of Galilee or in a place they feel comfortable like Capernaum or Bethsaida or some of the little towns that they knew. He took them on a 60-mile walk north of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Caesarea Philippi. I've been there 12 times to Caesarea Philippi. I've, I've led tours for people to Israel. It's an amazing place. The mouth of the Jordan River was there. And that's where the Jordan River started. It's a beautiful spot. And there are caves and there are waterfalls and it's beautiful. And, and I picture Jesus took his disciples there. It's kind of a retreat center. And I have imagined the disciples actually getting cleansed in that waterfall. And it was a beautiful waterfall. The water pours down. I imagine these young men, Jesus and his disciples, kind of romping in that waterfall and playing there. And, but where, I, where the real meaning is of Caesarea Philippi, is it's where the god Pan was born, the Greek god Pan. And the area of that region is not only known as Caesarea Philippi, but Banyas. And Banyas is kind of a mutation of Panyas for Pan, where the god Pan was born. So the Greek god Pan was worshipped there. And still to this day, there are niches in the walls, and people worship these gods there, ba the Baal gods, the Pan god. They build a temple to Caesar. So they're worshipping all these secular gods. And it's in that setting where all these gods are worshipped that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Another thing I want you to notice about the story is that he doesn't ask the most important question first. He kind of tiptoes into it. Ever had to tiptoe into a topic that you know is not going to be an easy topic? I think he tiptoes into the topic saying, well, what, what, are the, what are the people saying? What's the word on the street about me? Who are people saying that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. But then he asks, who do you say that I am? It wasn't an easy question to ask the disciples, frankly. He'd invested three years of his life in these guys. And he's now wondering, do they know? Do they get it? Do they know who I am? Do they, do they understand who I am? It's not an easy question. Martin Copenhaver says in his book, this question is like dropping a silver dollar on a glass floor, and it kind of just shatters and reverberates. I don't think any of the disciples breathed when he asked the question. Have you ever asked someone a question, and you weren't sure what the answer was going to be? You knew what you hoped it was going to be, but you weren't sure and you were nervous about it, you were perspiring. Remember the first time you told somebody who you really, really, really liked, I love you? I remember being a freshman in college, and I'd fallen over, head over heels in love with this woman named Suzanne Snyder, and she's now been my wife for 51 years, but then we were just getting to know each other, and we'd been dating for a few months. I remember walking to class one day, and I kind of got, got overcome with being with her, and I, I liked her. I was nervous to say this, but she was so beautiful, and I looked her in the eye. I said, Suzanne, I love you, and what do you think I wanted her to say? Well, you all know, I love you too. But she didn't say that. She said, that sounds so good. 
I thought, well, give her a little time. Maybe, maybe she'll come around. But then I remember later, several weeks later, when she said, I love you too, it meant a lot to me. You remember these days when you were telling somebody you love them? Well, here's Jesus. He's been with these disciples for three years, and he kind of wants to know, did they get it? Do they understand who I am? Do they know who, who I really am here, that I'm God made flesh? Do they, are they getting it? And he wasn't sure what their response was going to be. I think they didn't breathe. I think they were silent. I think they were perspiring. He was perspiring, I think. And finally, Peter breaks the silence and says, you are the Messiah. The Messiah is a Hebrew word, and it means the anointed one of God. And the Greek translation of it is Christ. So Christ is a title. Messiah is a title. The anointed one of God. Peter is saying, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. But it's interesting that, that Simon's name at this point is Simon. Now, in Matthew's version of this story, Simon, after he says, you're the Christ, uh, Jesus says in Matthew's account, um, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You shall be called Petros, Peter, meaning rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And actually, the, the Roman Catholics think Peter is the first pope because he got his name Peter from Jesus on the rock on which you will build my church. And all that is in Roman Catholic history and Protestant history. But imagine Simon Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, instead of saying, you got it, Peter, he sternly warns them not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah. Now, why did he say that? Well, it's because the word Messiah was controversial. The people thought they wanted a political military Messiah who was going to defeat Israel's enemies, restore them to the glory they knew under David and Solomon. And they thought this Messiah was going to defeat all their enemies. Jesus knew his, the greatest enemies he had to defeat was sin and death by dying on the cross. That's why he, he died on the cross, defeat the enemies of sin and death. But the disciples wanted him to be the political military ruler. And many say that Judas, who betrayed him, think, was thinking when he betrayed him that now he would pull out his sword and become the political military ruler that everybody wanted. And of course, Jesus was a radically different kind of Messiah than Judas thought or that any of the people thought. What would you say if Jesus said to you, who do you say that I am? Are you a Messiah who's going to meet my needs? Or are you really the son of God? And am I on the face of the earth to serve you, not you serving me? I think some of us would be tempted if Jesus looked us in the eye and said, who do you say that I am? I think some of us would be tempted to say, well, you're a great moral teacher. In fact, you're the best moral teacher the world ever saw. You're, you're, you have the highest ethical values. You're a prophet. You're a great healer, Jesus. They'd say all those things. But C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist and theologian, says, you really can't say Jesus is a great teacher if you don't think his teaching is very good. In other words, his teaching was... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the resurrection and the life. Anybody who believes in me, though they may die, yet shall they live. And anybody who lives and believes in me will never die. And really, when he said that, he's really saying something about himself. He's making a dramatic statement about himself. And C.S. Lewis says, a guy who would say those things is either a liar or a lunatic. The only other possibility is that he is who he says he is, and you call him Lord. Is he a liar, a lunatic, 
or a Lord. So Karl Barth, the great German theologian, was speaking at Princeton Seminary, my alma mater, and Jessica von Lohr's alma mater too. And he was speaking there in 1963. He's the most brilliant theologian of the 20th century. But after he had given this lecture, Karl Barth, one of the students, asked him, Dr. Barth, did God reveal himself in other religions or only in Christianity? A friend of mine who was there back in 1963 said that Barth said something that was like lightning and thunder in that chapel. Barth said, I don't believe God reveals himself in any religion, including Christianity. God reveals himself in his son. That's it. And the invitation of a God revealed in God's son is an invitation to have a personal walk with the God of the universe all the days of your life. And he said, that is a staggering truth. And all the people at the seminary that day, it's like nobody wanted to breathe because Barr was suggesting that the God of the universe had come and wants a relationship with us and wants us to let us into his life and let him into our lives. And he wants a relationship with us. The God of the whole universe is here. So what Bart's saying is this is an invitation for a daily personal walk with God. So what would it mean for you to say or me to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to believe something? There was a tightrope walker from France named Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin was a brilliant tightrope walker. He was a, a circus performer, but he liked to perform in nature. He lived to be 72 years old. He lived in the 19th century. Well, on June the 30th, 1859, this is a true story, he took a wire and put it over the Niagara River in northern New York near Niagara Falls. And they put this wire over the falls 1,150 feet long. Imagine that over three football fields long. And then he said to the crowd who had assembled there, he was going to walk over this, over the Niagara Falls and over the Niagara River, and he wondered if people thought he could do it. So he said to the crowd who had assembled, how many of you believe I can do this? And many raised their hands. They all believed him. They were applauding for him to do it. He got up on the wire with his balance beam, and he was able to walk 1,150 feet across, and the crowd erupted. Then, he said, how many of you believe I could do it again with a person on my back? The crowd erupted again. They applauded. They all raised their hands. We believe you can do it. We believe you can do it. Then he said, who will volunteer to get on my back? There wasn't a Presbyterian in the crowd. Nobody thought he could do that. They didn't want him to do that with them. So his manager, a man named Harry Colcord, true story, gets on his back, Charles Blondin's back, and together they walk 1,150 feet back across this gorge, and they did it, and everybody applauded. But here's the question. What does it mean to believe? Does it mean intellectually, I believe the guy can walk across? the rope, or I believe he can walk across with somebody on the back? Or is belief more than just intellectual? See, I believe that belief involves intellect, but it involves emotion, it involves trust, it involves relationship, and it involves a volitional act of the will to take a step forward and to take a risk and to say to somebody, I love you. It's taking a risk because you don't know what the response is going to be. But all of that is faith. It's what faith means. But what would it mean for us to respond in faith? What does it mean to 
have a faith? What does it mean to, to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? Well, I've got a chair sitting up here in the, in the chancel. This chair actually means a lot to me, not this particular chair, but the idea of a chair. A man who's come to mean a lot to me named Tom Cousins used this chair to help me learn what it means to follow God. Tom Cousins has made a lot of money. He's a very wealthy guy, and he's funded some of the ministries that I've had and funds other things with money he made as an Atlanta real estate developer. Much of the city of Atlanta was built by Tom Cousins. He's an amazing guy. But I went to his foundation to apply for a grant. I was going to get some money from him, so I had to go to the foundation meeting. And Tom, he had this chair at the end of the board table. And imagine a board table over here and all these people sitting around it, and I had to appeal to them for a grant. But this empty chair was right here. And I thought maybe I was sitting in the chair. I said, no, no, you sit over here. And he sat here. Uh, and I wondered, what's the empty chair doing there? And he said, before we start this meeting, I just want to say what I say at every board meeting, and that is, all of you think that I'm the CEO of this foundation, and I guess I am technically. But I, I said some years ago, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I meant it. So the empty chair is, symbolizes the fact that I'm not the real CEO. The real CEO is sitting here in this empty chair, and his name is Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine that he's here. I don't want us ever to make a decision about spending money that we couldn't make if the real CEO was sitting here. I don't want us to ever use a tone of voice with anybody that we couldn't use if the real CEO was sitting here. I don't want us to make any decision or do anything that we couldn't do if the real CEO was sitting here, because I believe he's sitting here and his name is Jesus Christ. Well, that impacted me. And I began to wonder as I looked at that empty chair, I look at it every time I go in that board meeting at the room at the CF Foundation in Atlanta, Georgia, where I worked for many years. I look at that empty chair, and I began to ask myself, what would it mean for me if I brought an empty chair into our family, or into our neighborhood, or into the work that I do, or into my life or Suzanne's life? I began to wonder, what would it mean if Jesus Christ was really sitting here when I'm trying to make an important decision about the future, or you're trying to decide who you're going to marry, or what you're going to do for your career, or what you're going to do in your future? What if you consulted the real CEO and imagined Jesus Christ really sitting here? What would that mean? So T.S. Eliot was right. Every now and then, life drops an unavoidable question at your door. And the unavoidable question today is really, who do you say that I am? Who's sitting in the empty chair of your life? Whose decision-making is most important in your life? Who's the most important person in your life? Your spouse, your child, your parents, your friend, your employer? Or could it be that the real CEO is the most important one, and it means giving a little more of yourself to a little more of God, a little more of yourself to a little more of God every day, until the real CEO of your life comes through. So I ask you the question, it's a personal question. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Who do you say Jesus is looking you in the eye? Who do you say that I am? Will you let me be the real CEO of your life? So, some years ago, a man who was Roman Catholic, he got cancer, and it was very severe. It was a cancer in his lungs, and it had spread widely. And he didn't know if he was going to make it or not. He told his daughter that they had told him maybe he'd live a few months. He said to his daughter, I really wish, if I don't live very long, I really wish that I could learn to pray. I, I don't know how to pray, and I don't know how to talk to God. 
So his daughter went to the Roman Catholic priest and she said, my dad is dying. Actually, he doesn't know how long he's going to live. And it would mean a lot to me if you could teach him how to pray, how to talk to God. And the priest said, I can do that. So he went to the hospital and he went every week and every week and every week. And he talked to this Roman Catholic man who was dying of cancer very slowly. He taught him how to pray and talk to God every day. Well, the man told his daughter, the priest has really made me feel close to God. I feel transformed by God. I, I actually feel pretty close to God. Now I can talk to God. I can pray. He gave me a simple exercise to imagine God with me and I can pray to God. And the daughter didn't ask any more details. She just thanked the priest and she told her dad how much it meant to her. So over the next few months, the dad got weaker and weaker and weaker. And finally, there was a day when he got so weak and she knew he wasn't going to make it. And he didn't live through the day. She was with him as much as she could possibly be, but she took a break to just get a quick bite to eat. She said goodbye to her father every time she left the room that day because she knew he may not be alive when she came back. And sure enough, when she came back from this dinner break, he had died. So she told the nurse and called the funeral home and they made all the arrangements and the daughter got everything in order as you do when the loved one dies. And she, on her way home from the hospital, she stopped by the Roman Catholic Church. She saw the priest and she said, I just wanted you to know my father died. And I just wanted to thank you for teaching him how to pray. It really seemed to help him. The priest said, yeah, you know, your dad is the most interesting guy. You know, when I told him this simple technique, he loved it. And the daughter said, what do you mean? She said, well, I just told him to imagine that Jesus is in a chair by his bed. And whenever he wanted to talk to God, if he had trouble talking to God, just pull the chair over real close to the edge of the bed and just imagine Jesus is right there. And just imagine that he's talking to Jesus because he could, he is talking to Jesus. Just imagine it in his mind. And the daughter burst into tears. And tears were streaming down her face. And she said, boy, this has really helped me. And he said, did I say the wrong thing? And she said, no, you didn't say the wrong thing. You said the right thing. But, but I'm just trying to process all of it. He said, what's going on? She said, well, when I went back in the room after I'd had something to eat, I went back in the room and my father was in the bed. His body was in the bed. But to be honest, he had twisted himself a little bit and his head was not on the pillow. He had leaned way, way over and his head was in the chair. Amen.